Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. Normally, I let guests introduce themselves, but as soon as they got into the studio, we just started talking. So I hit record. Dimitri Lascaris is back talking about disrupting business as usual for politicians complicit in genocide. Dimitri is a lawyer, a journalist, a a staple in Canadian politics. And as you'll hear, he's also quite the shit disturber. If you know us at all, you'll know we absolutely mean that as a compliment. This is the second time he's been on our show, so be sure to go back and listen to Wasted Energy. That's where Dimitri talks about his experience inside the Green Party and his general take on partisan politics in Canada. It's not that far different from mine. You'll likely have also seen footage of Dimitri and other disruptors confronting federal politicians primarily the ruling liberals, for their roles in Israel's war crimes. They are meeting these people head on and upsetting their agendas to put focus where it should be on a matter that can't wait, that has no room left for niceties. We ask him how he manages to track these folks down all the time, if he gets nervous, disrupting events, and why he uses this method as a means to get Canada to act. At one point, he'll encourage you to do the same wherever you are. And we second these calls. At no point should any politician feel comfortable throwing fundraisers as they send warships to ensure the flow of weapons continue from our shores to Israel. Dimitri can't be everywhere. The Palestinian youth movement cannot be everywhere, not without your help. The interview starts here by diving right into Dimitri telling us the story of his latest face-to-face with a liberal MP. So sit back, listen in, and get fired up to be disruptive. Yes, so this morning, uh, Minister Mark Miller, whose portfolio includes refugees, uh, gave a press conference about an infrastructure project uh, in a riding, it's either my riding in Montreal or right next to it. And uh, I learned about this through Eve. And uh, I went there fully expecting uh, to encounter the typical scenario we now encounter, which is that there were going to be RCMP officers at the entrance to the building. Whether or not I'd actually met them before, they would immediately recognize me and Eve and they would try to stop us from entering the building. Uh, even though even I have never done anything allegedly or actually criminal or peaceful protesters. And frankly, the questions we ask are the kinds of questions that any conscientious journalist would ask, right? Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, the mainstream media doesn't have a lot of conscientious journalists. But we showed up there today, and it's these, these disruptions, you never, you never know what you're going to find, right? So we showed up this morning, and uh, there, were, there was nobody at the door, nobody at the entrance to the building, like no we security? Walked, nothing. And we walked into the um, the room where it was being held, which is kind of like a kind of looked like a classroom. And uh, 
Miller hadn't shown up yet, and there were chairs there, and we sat down. So we were basically three meters away from the minister. Uh, me, Eve, and two other activists came, two other disruptors. So there were four of us in a crowd of around, I don't know, 20 people. And um, after, we allowed him to make his presentation, and there were others who spoke about this infrastructural project. And then we got to the Q&A. And, uh, you know, Eve went, Eve went first. And each of us had a good uh, several minutes going back and forth with him. And uh, that, that's very rare. Usually what happens, if you get a question off at all, within 30 seconds, uh, some uh, brutes in suits have their hands all over you and they're dragging you out. And here, no one dragged us out. No one even attempted to drag us out. So it was really quite uh, telling. And uh, the reason why I started recounting this to you, Justice, because you asked me, you know, what can Canada do? And that was exactly what he asked me. Uh, and so I started rhyming. He, he asked me that question. Well, it's a talking <laughs> point, right? Like it's something they're pushing this kind of. Yeah. We've got no role to play here. And so I listed a bunch of things he could do. And then I said to him, you know, we'll be posting the video about this later. I said to him, you're doing none of those things. Uh, what did you do in the case of Ukraine? You imposed sanctions. You sent weapons to the Ukrainians. You voted uh, for resolutions at the UN condemning what Russia did. Uh, you know, uh, you urge the Russian people to overthrow their president. In this case, you're on the side of the oppressor. You are doing everything imaginable to support the brutal oppression of the Palestinian people. And how do you account for this grotesque disparity in treatment of these two human rights violators? And he, he refused to answer my question. He literally, we went back and forth and he actually just walked away from the mic, refusing to answer my question. Amazing. They're just not prepared to answer these questions because there's no answer. We, there's no defending it. There's, you know, I find it funny though that he posed that question to you, thinking that you wouldn't have a pocket answer for that. Like you've not already been asked that question a million times over. Like you've not, yeah, been screaming from the top of your lungs already what the things that they can do are. But he's just so ill prepared to handle this that that's all he could think of <laughs> i think it speaks in a certain way to as you were saying dimitri about conscientious journalists and mainstream media to the to the lack of challenge they receive typically in their interactions with the media leaves them unprepared for these kinds of situations because they're just not used to having any kind of scrutiny whatsoever that's exactly exactly what it is it's exactly what it is these people are like fish out of water when they get a real question you know these these softballs that they constantly, you know, they go on power and politics and the at issue panel and they're on CTV and they're just getting one softball after the other and they get a tough question. They fold up like a cheap suit. Meanwhile, we're grilled online constantly, right? Yeah. So we've got the answer to everything, or at least we think we do. But yeah, that's uh, I, I look forward to watching the video on that because you're right. We normally do get to see all of these, thankfully, they're videotaped and they usually do end up with a very certain viewpoint. <laughs> it's um, I feel like Eve's needs a T-shirt that says, don't touch me or get your hands off me, you know, <laughs> because that's how the video typically ends. Get your hands off me. Shame on you, Minister Jolie, you know, and yeah. And they don't have the right to touch us. Like people should understand that, right? If you're just standing there and you're not posing a threat to anybody and you haven't been asked to leave and refused to leave, uh, even then, like only an officer of the peace can physically remove you from the premises if you're not posing a threat to anybody. These people don't care. Like literally the moment you ask a question, their hands, their grubby paws are all over you and they're dragging you out. Uh, the fact you're a card carrying member of, you know, the freelance union in Canada means nothing to them. Are you wearing a press pass when you do this most of the time? 
Uh, usually I don't because if they see my name, they won't let me in. <laughs> so They don't recognize you because I think that's a question a lot of people are watching. Like how, one, I wish Eves was here. Like when he jumps on, maybe we'll ask him as well. But like, how do you find them? You know, because we all kind of want to know where they are. We've seen them be disrupted at restaurants and stuff like that. So on one-offs, people are finding them. But you folks seem to be consistently at every time they they pop their head out of their office. Like it's like whack-a-mole. Uh, and they can't go anywhere in Ottawa without running into one of you two. Like, how do you find them? Well, I don't want to get without specific about that. Because yeah. if I do, they'll <laughs> yeah. they'll just negate whatever, you know, information we're getting. But I will say this. Uh, the fact that we've become known um, as disruptors of uh, senior federal politicians and others uh, has caused people to volunteer information to us all the time. Uh, you know, sometimes people we don't know and you'll get an email, a text and they'll say, hey, man, I just found out so and so is going to be speaking here. You may want to know about this. So you never know where the information is going to come from. But uh, it is true that, um, you know, if I announce in advance going into because, you know, we've got a certain degree of notoriety now with the uh, with the uh, security details for these ministers and especially the prime minister, if we announce in advance what our names are. Very little prospect we'll get anywhere close to the minister. And we'll never get to ask our questions. So we have to be as discreet as possible. Because that's like two different routes you could take. Some people are like, as many people as possible come outside of this restaurant, this event, you know, make some noise. You two are preferring the more stealth mode. But I still find it surprising that the amount of times you've done this, you know, your picture's not plastered on every staffer's clipboard before they throw an event. It's like the usual suspects to watch watch out for i mean getting a seat at the q a with mark miller is <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah i think did that catch you off guard because you're always prepared to just basically yell some one-liners and get what you can get out there before they drag you out i really didn't think i was going to get that much time with him like i grilled him for a good three or four minutes i wish i could get opportunities like that on a regular basis because it, it not not because of you know so it gives me some personal perverse delight to embarrass these people, but because it really exposes the complete lack of any moral or intellectual foundation to the government's policies. If you can grill these people and all they do is avoid questions and repeat gibberish, uh, then people finally understand, you know what, there's no principle behind this at all. Nothing. They have nothing to say in defense of their behavior. Uh, so that's the whole point of this exercise. And as I say, if the, if the journalists, the so-called journalists in the mainstream media were doing it, we wouldn't have to do it. I got better things to do with my time than chase down Mark Miller, you know. If you were to reach out to them as, you know, uh, a freelance journalist, like, have you tried getting responses that way? I'm guessing how that would go. Um, but I'm wondering what, what kind of responses maybe you've gotten in the past if you've tried to, you know, actually give them a heads up. Uh, ignored, completely ignored. Yeah. And in fact, uh, on a number of occasions, uh, so now one thing that they often do is they'll say there's going to be a presser at such and such a, uh, well, they might not give you, they don't give you the the, the, uh, the precise location, typically. Now the PMO's office, for example, will say, uh, on this date, at this time, the prime minister will give a speech and there will be a press conference. Uh, you can register and then we'll give you details. So you don't know where it's happening. You just know what city it's taking place in. So then you register and, uh, you know, they either ignore your registration, they never send you the information, or they'll come back and they say you're not accredited. 
So they have this process, as I understand it, uh, where it's not, it isn't accredited journalist. It's not that, you know, you are a bona fide journalist. That's not what they're asking you. What they're asking you is, have you been approved by the prime minister's office to attend these press conferences? That's what they mean by accredited. And of course, they're not going to prove me to, so I can't answer questions. Even though I'm a card-carrying member of the freelance union in Canada, even though I've been doing journalism for over a decade, and I've had you know hundreds of reports published on various media, they will not accredit me. It flies in the face of what journalism is supposed to be, right? Like it's not supposed to be something where there is, you know, where there is accredited journalists and non-accredited journalists. It's supposed to be that anybody can be a journalist if they want to, right? Exactly. And so by controlling this, I mean, it's very, it's very manufactured consent, but much, much less subtle than it can often be. I mean, this is very blatant manipulation. Yeah. Um, It's a shame. Yeah, I don't think people in this country really understand how difficult it is for the media to get access to these people. It's extremely tightly controlled. And if you're being given regular access to senior officials in the government, it's because they've made a determination that you're friendly. Bottom line, you're going to ask friendly questions. You're not going to challenge the fundamental orthodoxy behind the government's actions. Uh, you know, you'll pretend you like give them a little, of course, there is a little bit of uh, shall we say, scrutiny applied by the media. If there was no scrutiny at all, they'd have absolutely no credibility and everybody know what they're just propaganda. So they have to engage in some level of critical scrutiny, but they never really challenge the fundamental premises of government action. For example, the capitalist system or the fact we have an imperialist foreign policy, the fact that we've aligned ourselves with egregious human rights leaders, uh, violators. You can't touch those with a 10-foot pole. And I think like in the environment in which you get like an official response or an interview, you're getting those canned political prepared answers. And in the environment that Dimitri and Eves are finding them is sometimes fundraisers. They've got a whole other line of thinking. They've got talking points that are completely unrelated to what they're about to be asked about. And I think catching them off guard is what helps prove that illegitimacy that allows them to stumble through that, right? Rather than these polished answers that we see regurgitated through typical media sources, right? But totally, they're not ready. Well, I mean, I think some of them are steeled against expecting you at this point. You have some favorite targets, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I imagine you'd really want one-on-ones. I know you got MP Miller, but perhaps Minister Jolie would be on your your to-do list, uh, house father, and obviously the prime minister. Yeah, and Freeland. Oh, God. Oh, I had, you know what? She's in my notes with a question mark because my question about Freeland is like, I have not, I have not seen you guys cross paths. Maybe no. I missed the video, but is she being particularly elusive? I feel like she's laying low through this entire thing. Well, she does. She is very elusive. Uh, part of the problem that we have, uh, we're, just logistically that even I have is we're based in Montreal and her, her riding is in Toronto. She spends a lot of time in Toronto. Uh, you know, we know this from various communications that her office puts out. So she's almost always in Toronto or Ottawa. She's talking to some Bay Street bigwigs or something. But yeah, I, I, it's true. I've never actually crossed paths with Christina Freeland. We, we went to her office a couple of times, occupied it, but she was nowhere in town at the time. Uh, but I want to say something about fundraisers though. Uh, they are, uh, incredible opportunities because these things are meant to be relatively intimate affairs 
and uh, you get into them and you get to listen to a whole speech and there's usually a crowd of media there uh, who may actually provide some coverage to your disruption. But the problem is you have to pay money and oftentimes it's very significant money to get in there. One of the best, I, maybe even the best disruption I ever was part of was uh, in 2018, <laughs> uh, uh, in May of that year, an Israeli sniper shot a Canadian-Palestinian doctor in Gaza. His name is Dr. Tarek Lubani. He was shot in both legs. This was during the Great March of Return, when refugees were walking up to the fence of the concentration camp and demanding that they be allowed to return to their homeland. And they were being gunned down mercilessly by Israeli snipers. Uh, Dr. Lubani, who frequently goes to Gaza and treats, uh, you know, uh, Palestinians at Al Shifa Hospital, which was just destroyed by the Israelis. He was wearing a medical garb in the field, uh, clearly identified as a doctor, and he got shot twice. What does the Canadian government do? Two weeks after this happens, uh, they enter into an enhanced free trade agreement with Israel. Rather than impose sanctions, they rewarded Israel. And so a character by the name of Eli Cohen, who was the uh, economy minister of Israel at the time, and who is now the foreign minister and is deeply complicit in this genocide, uh, he comes to Toronto. At the time, uh, François-Philippe Champagne was the foreign minister. And uh, they hold this big uh, shindig at, um, at the Royal York Hotel. And uh, to get in, it was like 150 bucks. Uh, a piece and we raised enough money to buy five tickets and so we went in there and one of the people who went in there with us with us was Hamam Farah who uh, is a Canadian Hamam. Palestinian yeah you know Hamam is uh, he's got family in Gaza you know and we stood up one after the other and uh, you know um, let our feelings be known to uh, Mr. Cohen uh, about what happened and the entire thing was basically a train wreck the, this fundraiser was a train wreck because the thing lasted a good 20, 25 minutes, uh, the disruption. Um, but that's costly, right? And it takes tremendous amount of uh, coordination uh, to pull Did that off. you go one at a time? Yeah. Yeah, we had a, a distinct plan. We knew exactly what order we were going in. Uh, we, had, uh, we knew what we were going to say. We divided up sort of subject matter. And we had another person who was designated to film the entire thing. Uh, so it, it's, it's complicated to pull that off, but it's really, it's, it's disgraceful that you have to go to these lengths to ask these politicians tough questions. Like it's just, it's crazy. A lot of pay for access. Absolutely. You know, that's just, it speaks, it speaks to our whole political system, right? That even as a journalist, you essentially do have to pay for access and, mm -hmm. and still, you know, have so very little influence over their responses and, I mean, Canada has finally called for a ceasefire, sort of, <laughs> begrudgingly is how I described it. And not even all the liberals are happy about this. Housefather in particular has kind of made a mission not only to prop up this genocide, but to demonize pro-Palestinian activism. And I've seen him accosted quite a few times how many other politicians are out there that are so... We saw a list released by the Maple. I'll have to edit that if I'm wrong. Of all of the MPs who were taken on a trip to Israel through lobbyist groups. Are all those folks on your list of 
politicians that need to be held accountable? Sure. You know, I'll, I'll disrupt any MP anywhere, anytime if that person needs to be held to account. Uh, we, you know, we try to focus on people who are, uh, you know, particularly powerful in the government for obvious reasons, right? They're the ones who have the greatest impact on or the greatest role in formulation of Canadian policy. Uh, but any any member of parliament, in my view, uh, should be held to account through rigorous questioning uh, in any, you know, wherever the opportunity presents itself. You know, you mentioned the case of Housefather. I just want to say something about Housefather. When Tarek Lubani was shot, uh, you know, even though the Canadian government, uh, you know, shortly thereafter entered into an enhanced free trade agreement with Israel and brought over the economy minister to, you know, wine and dine him on Bay Street, there was a brief moment when the Trudeau government condemned Israel within 24 hours. And what caused this, by the way, in my view, was that the Canadian press actually reported on it. Okay, so there were articles in the Globe and Mail. There was one in the Toronto Star, uh, London Free Press, because Tarek is based in London, Ontario. At that point, Trudeau puts out a statement, which was arguably the harshest statement he's ever put out in his time as prime minister about something Israel did. And lo and behold, Michael Housefather and Michael Levitt, who at that time was a liberal MP, he's now the CEO of the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center, uh, and he was also the chair of a parliamentary subcommittee on international human rights at that moment, they put out their own statement and criticized their government for having the temerity to condemn Israel's shooting of a Canadian-Palestinian doctor. Um, so I called them out for this, and then I was attacked by the leader of the, by the prime minister himself, uh, and by uh, the head of the opposition, and also by Jagmeet Singh, because I called them out for putting the interests of uh, Israel in, ahead of those of Canada, which in my view is exactly what they were doing. Um, you know, and it had nothing to do, of course, with the claim was that I was saying this about them because they're Jewish. This has absolutely nothing to do about, with the fact that they're Jewish. It has to do with an ideology they ascribe to, which is a fundamentally racist ideology. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've condemned plenty of people in the Canadian Parliament for espousing that ideology who are not Jewish, they're Christians or even atheists. Uh, this is, you know, the, the fundamentally, um, you can't even criticize people on the basis of their record without being subjected to these kinds of smears in this country nowadays. Even when they're throwing a Canadian-Palestinian doctor under the bus. I mean, it's remarkable. Or defending genocide. Even worse. The worst of things. You can't possibly do something worse than our government's now doing. You've given a few examples on how Canada has been complicit in this, more so in the absence of condemnation or keeping close relations despite the human rights record and the fact that it participates in an illegal occupation. But you gave MP Mark Miller more than that in terms of what Canada can be doing to end the siege on Gaza and then end the occupation. Do you want to share them with us? Sure. Uh, so he says, you know, what should we do? And by the way, I think the reason why he asked me that question is because he was buying time. He, he just wanted to make me talk because he didn't know what to do. But anyways, whatever his motivation may have been, I rhymed off the following. Impose an arms embargo on Israel. Uh, you've done that with respect to countless other human rights violators. Why can't you do it with Israel? I said to him, your government gives preferential trade tariff treatment to products produced in Israel's illegal settlements. You do this even though your government acknowledges that the settlements are a violation of the Fourth Geneva Convention. 
stop giving them preferential tariff treatment, uh, ban their importation into Canada. Uh, your government allows these products to be marked as product of Israel. I've been lit litigating a case on behalf of Dr. David Kattenberg for five years to try to get the government to ban the use of product of Israel labels on these uh, settlement products. Uh, I said, stop that, you know, tell these people that they can't put those labels on these products. Expel the Israeli ambassador. And he looks at me and then when I said that, he goes, you want us to expel Israeli diplomats? I said, yeah, <laughs> why not? <laughs> Has know? he not been keeping up? You would not, Canada would not be the first country. No, and not only that, but they expelled, how many Russian diplomats did they expel? So what, the Israeli diplomats, why do they get a free pass? That's so, funny that he was astonished at the, the mere suggestion. Yeah. And then he, he says to me, he goes, uh, and what should we do about Hamas? I said, we should do the same things. You know, he goes, you want us to sanction a, a terrorist organization? That's what he actually said to me. I said, sir, your government is sanctioning terrorist organizations. It's been doing it for years. Why are you expressing amazement that I would suggest you should sanction a terrorist organization? <laughs> like, it was literally incoherent babble that came out of this man's mouth. That's how I feel like all the, the, the discussion around this is like, makes no sense, or I've described it as the Twilight Zone, where people are just spouting the most obvious hypocrisies and pretending that that's not happening. And you're looking around going, are you hearing yourself? Especially in proximity to what has just happened in Ukraine and how much we know about our response to that. And these are the same people. Often on Twitter, they even have the Ukraine flag in their bio, and you're just like... I don't know where to go from there with you. Like, yeah. if you can't see that, I don't know where to start. But yeah, well, okay. I'm sorry to interrupt. But one of the worst genocide apologists in the Canadian media nowadays is Andrew Coyne. Go check out his Twitter profile. Oh yes, no, I I well, blocked it. But what's well, beside do know. the Ukrainian flag, Israeli flag? How do you how do you reconcile those two things? I mean, the man lives in some kind of alternate universe. You know what? You know, There's very gonna... few flag combinations that can exist on Twitter that I'm not wary of. Like very few, maybe an Irish and a Palestinian flag or something. I don't know. But yeah, it's that's a big red flag. Yeah. I mean, we we, we were doing a, an episode a, a couple of days ago on the rise of fascism in the West and, a, and in, in Canadian politics. And one of the things that we kind of talked about was how opportunistic uh, it often is. And that's how you get situations where, you know, you get that Ukraine-Israel flag combo. It's because we're opportunistic to whatever most benefits our, our interests, as opposed to having any sort of consistency in our application of, you know, human rights and whatnot. I mean, Canada respecting human rights is a bit rich considering how many of those human rights had to be written because of Canadian violations in previous wars and whatnot. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I want to just qualify one thing, though. I must part comp with, uh, company with you on one thing. And I think, pro I suspect you probably will agree with me on this, uh, but you said our interests. Uh, these policies are not in the benefit of the interests, uh, not to the benefit of ordinary Canadians. No. There's absolutely no benefit <laughs> to ordinary Canadians in supporting a damn genocide, you know. They're, they are disgracing this country. And not only that, not only are they destroying whatever credibility left is left for Canada on the international stage, but they're generating a tremendous amount of anger against Canada in the Muslim and Arab world. With complete justification, people are angry. And, you know, we all know the term blowback. You know, I'm worried. And we should all be worried. 
when you support an open brazen genocide the way our government is doing, you know, it's all of a sudden we, they put a target on our backs. There's a lot of angry people out there. 9-11 happened for a reason. It was an atrocity, of course. But, you know, if you actually listen to the people who were participated in that, they said very clearly, we're outraged by what is being done to Arab and Muslim pe peoples, and including the Palestinians. So uh, this is not in our interest. This is in the interest of the elite. And Canada's done a pretty good job of standing out. Normally, we like to veil our really bad foreign policy, you know, speak out of two sides of our face. Canada's famous for it. We covered that in our, our interview with Tyler Shipley, where we appear to be doing something good and in the background, you know, we'll condemn them and then sign a free trade agreement. That was the example you gave earlier. But in this particular instance, we have stood out like a sore thumb, you know, at sometimes going beyond the U.S. position and lagging behind others who have kind of come around to the ceasefire. Or first it was like temperament, you know, easy, like let's lessen the civilian deaths. And I'm, I'm also frustrated that it took this long to simply get Canada to come around to a ceasefire position that they don't even really seem to you know that their heart's not in it, you know, if we can talk like that. Like, they're not going to make any efforts to achieve this ceasefire, right? So what do we actually need them to do next? And I think you you apologize, you apologize for interrupting me, but I think I interrupted you in giving the list of things that Canada can do. So an arms embargo, the, the preferential trade, you know. Yes. Expelling diplomats. diplomats. Did I miss any? Did we cut you off? Sure. Uh, ban the importation of uh, Israeli settlement products, uh, not just remove ter preferential tariff treatment, but if you're going to let them into the country, uh, insist that they be accurately labeled. Uh, you know, they should, they, it should say they're coming from, from a settlement in occupied territory. In fact, it should say an illegal settlement in occupied territory, which is the Canadian government's position that they're illegal. Uh, you know, there's a whole panoply of sanctions. That's just a really minor one because, of course, the vast majority of Israel's exports don't come from the settlements. They come from uh, businesses that are situated within the uh, internationally recognized boundaries of Israel. You could, you could ban those too. You could just cut off exactly what we did to Russia, right? We basically severed all economic relations with Russia with some minor exceptions. Why is Israel not being given the same treatment? You know, you could go, I didn't mention this, you could go to the International uh, Criminal Court and file a complaint. You know what Canada did a year ago? Uh, the General Assembly referred a matter to the International Court of Justice. I believe it was uh, the legality of the occupation, but it was having scrutiny about some aspect of Israel's behavior that amounts to a war crime. And uh, Bob Ray, genocide Bob Ray, uh, Canada's ambassador to the United Nations sends a letter to the International Court of Justice in August, you know, contrary to the overwhelming uh, view of the international community on this issue, because most states want the ICJ to review this conduct, says we don't support you uh, <laughs> exercising jurisdiction over this case. Don't do it. You know, Israel hasn't consented. Well, of course it hasn't consented. It's an egregious human rights violator and knows what the outcome is going to be. Uh, so, why don't, why don't you send a letter now that they're committing genocide to the ICJ and say, you know what, we rescind that. We take it back. We do support you exercising jurisdiction at the end of the day. And these are just things I can think of off the top of my head, okay? 
There's so many more things that the government could do. Uh, one, uh, one thing I, I should add is a mere change in the language that it employs. So let's stop, uh, you know, pretending that this right to it defend itself, which they talk about incessantly, extends to the mass murder of Palestinian children and say what this actually is, which it's a war crime. It's a crime against humanity. Acknowledge that Israel is an apartheid state, which virtually the entire international human rights community now acknowledges. What does the Trudeau government do? It says, oh, no, we, we disagree with that assessment. And then when they, on the rare occasion they get asked why, they won't tell you. They won't say why, because they have no justification for rejecting the apartheid label. So there's rhetorical changes they could adopt. It, it, literally, they haven't done anything, anything of the multitude of things they could do. The mental gymnastics the folks must do that write some of these statements and how much time they probably spend on crafting that language. So you know it's very, very deliberate because then none of them walk outside of that. And we are always, in this case, steps and steps behind other nation states that have seemingly come around like the United Kingdom and France now. But who's to say that that's not just simply lip service to the millions of people who have taken to the streets and other activists like you doing various actions across the country. Now, some of the things that you mentioned, I can see kind of being easier than others for the liberals to accomplish in the circumstances that they're under now. So what would you say to critics, though, that say like the liberals would just never do that or they would never get that passed in the House of Commons? Well, <laughs> why anybody would say that? It is official party policy of the NDP. Like one of the few good things you can say about the federal NDP nowadays is that they have a policy calling for an arms embargo on Israel. Okay, so there's no reason to believe yeah. that. Yeah, and this is probably, in my view, it is the single most powerful thing that is that Canada could do is to impose an arms embargo in Israel. Uh, we you know, have seen I mean, the NDP vote against their policy books, though, sure, <laughs> very many sure. times. But but if they're if they're going to do that, hold them to account. Then okay, expose them for the frauds and liars that they are. But that's their official policy. They've actually stood up in Parliament since this genocide began and have called for an arms embargo. They'd be in a very difficult spot if they vote in favor of an arms embargo. Of course, it's going to pass. And I think that the I, I'm sure that the two Green Party MPs would go along with it, even though they too are acting in a cowardly manner, frankly. Uh, but I don't think they're going to oppose an arms embargo in Israel. That's official Green Party policy. So what do we need to do to get the liberals to get that in motion? Do you think we're doing what we need to do? Uh, I think we have made a good start. Uh, the, the whole point of these disruptions is uh, to apply pressure. And I believe these people, um, they are affected when every time they show their face in public, somebody is calling them out for supporting the genocide. Uh, even if they don't have a conscience, which is certainly arguable, uh, they are concerned about how they look in public. And it is uncomfortable to be called a genocide supporter in front of your fans. So uh, I think that we have to escalate. And this has to be, it has to be a virtual slam dunk in their minds that every time they go in public, this is going to happen to them. Every time. When they get that uncomfortable, there's this great story that Chris Hedges tells uh, about Kissinger's memoirs, which I never could bring myself to read. So I just, I'm trusting Chris Hedges when he says this. He says that 
Kissinger told of a scene in the uh, White House during the height of the Vietnam War protests where, uh, you know, they had surrounded the White House with buses and uh, irate thousands upon thousands of irate protesters were surrounding the White House and some of them were clamming over the, uh, the buses. And uh, Nixon turns to Kissinger and says, Henry, they're coming to get us. <laughs> so not long after that, he brought the Vietnam War to an end. Um, now, I'm not advocating for violence. I want to be very clear about that. But should we strike the fear of God in their hearts? Should we uh, shame them, embarrass them? You know, I, I, and I've seen some, I, I haven't seen this done yet in Canada, but I'm fully endorse it. I've seen activists in the United States find the homes of these people and stand outside on their front lawn or on the street in their neighborhoods and condemn them for their depravity. That's the kind of thing we need to be doing. It can work. And I think some indication of that is that the Canadian government finally changed its position on this ceasefire. So one thing I'm wondering about is absent the government actually doing, like having an official arms embargo, how much more should we be escalating our tactics in terms of actually blockading these factories? Right. Uh, there was some of that happening earlier on. Uh, I haven't heard about it as much recently. I'm not sure if that means it's not happening. I'm just not getting exposed mm -hmm. to that. But that is something. It, it is a, a possibility, right? That is totally. one thing we should consider. Um, yep. There, they sh they, there was an action recently at Pratt & Whitney in Canada by Palestinian solidarity activists. Uh, I wholeheartedly endorse those things. Uh, you know, I've taken part in actions at uh, General Dynamics in London, Ontario. But you should know that if you take it to that point, you're risking arrest. You know, so people should have no illusions about that. When you start interfering with the, even if you're doing it peaceably, uh, ethically, you're interfering with the uh, economic uh, activity of some major corporation, uh, and you're not just, you know, hectoring some depraved politician in a public venue, uh, there's a higher likelihood that you're going to get arrested uh, for trespass or breaching the peace or something like that. If you're willing and able to assume that risk, uh, then this is, this is essential, an essential part of the disruptions that we need to be engaged in. Now, one, one thing's getting arrested. The other one is uh, what happens after you get arrested. Uh, as a lawyer, I guess I'll defer to you on what the consequences there are. Um, but is it likely for them to, uh, you know, throw the book at you kind of deal? Well, it, 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 you know, it's really hard to say. How much time are we going to get to meet you? We need to know. You can't really answer that question responsibly without having specific facts before you, right, as a general principle. Mm -hmm. Typically what happens in these cases uh, is people get charged with trespass, uh, you know, uh, and in fact, I was I was not charged, but at that Royal York event, I was trespassed out of the hotel. They told me if I came back, I would be arrested. Uh, if I ever came back. So you've not been arrested for, I guess it's hard to arrest a lawyer, especially. Because I imagine some people do get arrested for doing what you do, maybe released without charge. But, it, you know, the people that yeah. did Scotiabank, they ended up getting charged as well. And all they did was essentially disrupt but to, to Santiago's point, we're talking about disrupting the, the factories and whatnot. Well, well, now we know a lawyer, but no, just kidding. Um, <laughs> I, see, I see the way of 
disrupting their fundraisers, the liberal fundraisers, and, you know, their little fan club get-togethers as a way of hitting them where it hurts, right? Hitting the pocketbook, not of Israeli arms manufacturers. That is for other people. We're going to interview Labor for Palestine on how they do that. But, you know, getting cut off from your fundraisers as an MP will pressure you, whether maybe if you don't have a conscience, right? They do want to get reelected and, Disrupting those fundraisers from the outside, from the inside, does not play well into re-election. So I imagine that is a pressure point in itself, on top of the talking points, hopefully, that you're giving them while you do this. But Absolutely. Absolutely. So people, people uh, the main reason I think these disruptions are important is it's not so much what happens in the room. It's when you share what happened in the room with the broader world. Right. It's a critical aspect of this, because usually when you enter into one of these venues, uh, you're surrounded by sycophants. These are people who well, are we big know partisans, fans of the don't worry. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, or, or they're political climbers and they're just trying to ingratiate themselves with whoever's the star of the show. Uh, so you're not likely to make a lot of headway with those people. But some of them do actually come up to come up, come up to us afterwards and say, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Sometimes they say, you said something I wanted to say, and I've never, this happened today. When we came out of this event, a young lady came up to us outside the building and said, you said exactly what I wanted to say. I just didn't have the courage to say it. So it inspires people to pick up the mantle, uh, you know, and to broaden the movement and to apply further pressure. It does educate the public. Uh, These are very important reasons to engage in this sort of uh, behavior uh, but mostly it's just we got to make them as comfortable as possible about their depravity. Do you ever feel nervous going into these confrontational situations? Because, like, I I go live all the time. I still get incredibly nervous when I go to record certain things or speak, even though I seemingly don't appear. <laughs> you appear and Eve's appear fearless in this battle, right? And you have a mission when you're in there. I know the adrenaline's pumping once, once you get going, but... You know, as you're walking up to the door, as you're planning, do you have trepidation and worry? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I'm not. I'm not fearless. Uh, once my, once my, and this is the way. You know, I, I have the same feeling when I go into court. Like when I, I feel a lot of nervousness until I stand at the podium. But for some reason, once my mouth starts moving, it all goes away. Which is thank God. <laughs> but you know, but leading right up to the moment where I start talking, yeah, absolutely. And it's, I'm becoming increasingly nervous. Uh, in the current environment because, uh, you know, so I, I disrupted with, uh, well, Eve, Eve wasn't allowed in the building, but there was an event involving the prime minister about two weeks ago. And uh, I got roughed up pretty bad by a Montreal cop. And uh, when I, when he got to the door, uh, like they dragged me a good 30, 40 meters. There were three RCMP guys and this crazy cop. And we get to the door. I still had my, my iPhone. He smacked my arm hard. He was trying obviously to, caused my iPhone to fall out of my hand. Uh, and fortunately, he wasn't damaged. But this guy was a brute. And uh, they kind of had to restrain him, the RCMP guys. They're, t- they're relatively civilized. But these cops, can get these, you know, the, the, the municipal cops, they, these, some of these guys can go crazy. Uh, so, and it's not just that. It's, you, you know, you're walking into, as I mentioned, a hostile setting. It's, it's quite apart from the law enforcement officials who are there. Oftentimes, you know, the people there are big supporters of the politician and they'll boo you. That happens. Right. And anything the politician says to shut you down, they all give them a standing ovation. (laughs) So it's 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 a stressful experience. But I want to say to people out there who may be thinking about doing this so far, 
uh, I've never been arrested. I've never been charged with anything. The worst thing that happened to me was I was told if I returned to the Royal York, I'd be trespassed. And I got my arm, you know, hit by a cop. Uh, and um, I've always felt that we accomplished something good. And so uh, I don't want to overstate the danger. I'm glad you feel that way because you do actions that kind of don't have measurable outcomes as a success or a victory, right? Especially when you're dragged out and roughed up. It's kind of hard to look back at that and see a victory. But I'm I'm assuring you that people who view this content, that kind of performative show that it ends up being, and it is, I'm not trying to belittle it because it is, it's something to inspire people to do, to get people riled up, to get your opponent on the back foot a little bit. And it has an impact. It absolutely does. Because not only is it poignant and it's needed, but it's it's entertainment as well. Because we all want to do it. We want to see them squirm. We want to see them sweat and not have answers. That We all want to debate those, right? We, <laughs> I want to see the interaction with Miller. Because, yeah, shouting at someone has a certain... But really getting them to go back and forth and then winning that battle is something else. So I know your yeah. time is short. I want to ask you, you get your tips from the public. Is there a best way for folks to communicate with you if they'd like... Sure. Uh, so on my website, dimitrilascaris.org, uh, there's a little contact function. And if you uh, fill out that form, it goes immediately to the email that I use, the main, my main email account, and I will respond. I always respond to people eventually. It sometimes takes me a little time. But if you learn of an event, uh, please send it uh, to me. If you have my email address already, then send it to me directly, please. I invite you to do that. But if you don't, just you can just do it through my website. Because, yeah, I think like that responsiveness speaks into the network set and, and modes of communication that we need to build to be able to move fast. Because even Santiago this week needed to kind of respond to an event. And it was like, I need to know when these are happening, like before it's four hours too late, you know. And so figuring out how to do that and be ahead of the game uh, is important as well. Um, thank you so much, Dimitri, for sharing some of your secret tactics. Santiago, do you have a question before... Uh, not so much a question, seat. more of a, you know, I'm here in Toronto. I know uh, a few disruptors. So if you ever get word of something in here in Toronto that should be disrupted, let, let, let me know and I'll, I'll boost that to the relevant parties. I will definitely take you up on that offer. <laughs> Thank you very much. A the network more of the disruptors has begun. <laughs> yes. I love it. Yes. Thank you so much, Thank Dimitri. You. Good luck with your next uh, confrontation. We will be watching. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.